Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jim McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new story from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Kevin McMahon after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All stories are copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Today's story is Constant Speech, written by Christopher Clancy and narrated by Melissa Collings. Settle in and enjoy. Constant Speech by Christopher Clancy The beach was lousy with flies that morning, maybe the worst that Marjorie and Ron could remember in their 19 years of making the trip. It wasn't just that the insects were there, buzzing around their little sucker thingies making a sharp sting on sun-slickened shins and shoulders. It was their relentlessness, their ability to quickly regroup after a brushing or a swatting to launch a new attack. Marjorie had barely unfolded her chair and sat down before she was hitting herself with her paperback. She hadn't wanted to come here, to the beach. She would have rather killed time putting sheets on the beds and hanging towels in the bathrooms before settling out on the decks with a glass of wine and watching for a green Ford Explorer, driven by her daughter's new boyfriend, to come crunching down their gravel driveway. Marjorie had spoken with Winifred three hours before, and to her great annoyance, Wynne had not yet left her apartment. This, of course, meant that she and Hank, that was the new boyfriend, would likely run into bridge traffic, which meant an increase in frustrated and therefore risk-prone drivers, which meant there would be accidents, which meant more traffic. Mom, I've done this trip literally millions of times, Wynne had said. We'll be there by two, at the latest. Please don't worry. The time had been 1.49 when Marjorie and Ron left the house for the beach. Ron sat down with a contented sigh. Marjorie could tell he was going to try and ignore the flies. She observed him crossing his legs at the knee before pulling his book of crossword puzzles out of Marjorie's wicker bag. His self-restraint lasted about five seconds before he started swatting his own pale and freckled chins, muttering curses like everyone else. Do we have any bug spray? Back in the house, Marjorie said, pulling on the towel draped over the back of her chair and using it to cover her legs. This did much less good than she would have thought. Evidently, the flies could bite through the towel. Ron licked a forefinger and held it in the air, nodding. It's the wind, he said, uncrossing his legs and rubbing his feet together, causing the five or so flies that had accumulated there to hover patiently. It's coming from inland, so all the flies around the trash bins back there are brought to us. If the wind was coming off the water, we'd be fine. Marjorie nodded, having heard his theory before, though it didn't make perfect sense. How did the wind manage to pick up all those flies and just deposit them on the beach like this? How come the wind didn't continue to carry them out to the ocean? Hand me my phone? Ron began to rummage through Marjorie's bag. Didn't she say two o'clock? It's two now. Oh, so she'll be here soon. Good. I just want to check my messages. Ron glanced at the phone before handing it over. No messages. After snatching the phone out of Ron's hand, Marjorie slapped a fly on her knee, opened her traffic app, then slapped another fly on her other knee. Okay, there haven't been any accidents, she said. That's good. Three cheers for Hank, Ron muttered, brushing a fly off his belly. No, I didn't mean... Marjorie didn't know how to finish. I just meant accidents make more traffic. Of course you did. Ron whapped at his legs with his crossword puzzle book. I did. 
Marjorie waved away a fly that was buzzing in her face. I know, that's what I just said. Marjorie shut off her phone and held on to it. Two at the latest. The anticipation of five days of uninterrupted time with her daughter had thrown Marjorie into a state of ecstatic vulnerability. She could not remember feeling such a want so keenly, at least not since Libby's accident nine months and three weeks ago to the day. But back then, Marjorie's want felt doomed, was doomed from the start. She had been sitting here at this very beach, farther away from the lifeguard's chairs, though. When she got the call that there had been an accident and that Elizabeth Ann Bleeker, her firstborn, her Libby, was being rushed to Atlantic General Hospital after a head-on collision with a Coca-Cola van. An hour later, she was gone. Winifred, who'd been in school up in Rhode Island at the time, missed saying goodbye to her sister. She wound up moving back home, staying with Marjorie and Ron through Easter. Then, as if consciously concluding that the period of mourning was over, she transferred her credits to the University of Maryland and moved into an apartment in Silver Spring with a friend from elementary school. A couple months later, she had herself a boyfriend. This week-long stay and constant speech was to serve as Hank's introduction into the Bleeker family, and Marjorie planned on ignoring him as much as possible. Lunch at Parrot Cafe, strolls on the boardwalk, some possible rainy day outlet shopping. All these could likely be done without this Hank tagging along. Or Ron, for that matter. Marjorie checked her phone. The time was now to ten. She began rubbing her legs together, cricket-like, to ward off the flies. Thinking this action proved the same general concept as when cows swing their tails to keep themselves fly-free. Marjorie felt a little bit like a cow, truth be told. No, worse than a cow. Something slower. A turtle. Yes, a turtle. One of those huge ancient turtles. Tortoises? In the Galapagos. Their lifespan so long to accommodate their grueling slowness. Marjorie had definitely slowed in the past year. Ron had as well. They had proven too slow for their daughters anyway, and now their girls had gone on without them. When, in life, with her apartment and her boyfriend, and Libby, well, unchartered waters, let's say. Now here lay Marjorie, a fat old tortoise stranded on the beach, shrouded in a towel as flies descended. This must be what abandonment felt like. At one of the awful church basement bereavement meetings Ron had only recently stopped insisting they attend, a young woman who had lost her son to kidney failure said that sometimes she felt like her nine-year-old son had tricked her. Because this wasn't the deal, the young woman had said. And Marjorie empathized. The cosmic contract upon birth ought to include a stipulation that your child survives you. That should be part of the deal. And how lovely it would have been to go before Libby, into the afterlife, into the unknown, Marjorie could have made up a nice spot for her, a warm and sunny place with no pain, no darkness, no flies, and they could stay there and wait for Ron, and later, when. But for a good long while, it could just be the two of them, Marjorie and her Libby. They could hike, swim, and play go fish. They could have a picnic on Libby's old big bird blanket, and talk and laugh and feel the wind coming in from wherever. Ron leaned over and took Marjorie's empty hand. The gesture came as a surprise though not as much as Marjorie's finding tears running down her face. Marjorie placed her phone in her lap and wiped her cheeks, smiling at the waves. Who would have thought her and Ron's marriage was strong enough to withstand the loss of their firstborn child? But it had neither damaged nor strengthened their marriage. Instead, it became just one more thing they had in common, though their approaches toward dealing with it were very different. Whereas Marjorie's pain could have her shedding tears out of the blue without warning, right now as a strong case in point, 
Ron tended to hoard his pain, save it up. He had the ability to behave pretty much normally day to day, and then maybe once every couple of weeks, he would get up in the middle of the night and walk out to the backyard and climb up into the rotten treehouse to weep. At one of the first church basement bereavement meetings, he shocked Marjorie by raising his hand and describing this ability to schedule pain, having it come down on him at only those times he deemed appropriate. What the hell are you talking about? Marjorie had asked him in front of everyone, wanting to exact on her husband the maximum amount of embarrassment so that he would never again brag of his oh-so-even-keeled approach to mourning his daughter before these sad, useless strangers. Ron let go of Marjorie's hand to swat at a fly on his knee. All right, enough, he said, standing up. I'm getting in the water. Come with? What? Join me? Marjorie checked her phone. 2.25. I'm going to head back to the house she said, struggling to stand. The flies followed her. When should be here any minute? We don't have to greet her in the driveway, Marge. They'll want to clean up, unpack. Marjorie placed her hands on her hips and turned away. Sunlight glinted off the west-facing windows of their house. It had been close to this very time of day, in fact, when the EMT had called about Libby. Okay, just let me call Wynne. Ron nodded. Wynne's phone rang six times before going to voicemail. Marjorie shook her head, signaling to Ron that their daughter wasn't answering, then left a message asking her to please call her back ASAP. Hanging up, Marjorie noticed that the time was now 2.29. She felt like screaming. Can't make it on time? Fine. I get it. Can't call to let me know? Fine, you shouldn't be on the phone while driving. But to not pick up when she knows you're worried? Relax, they probably stop for a bite. Don't tell me to relax. Okay, okay, Ron hissed, looking around to see if anyone had heard his wife's outburst. Let's just get in the water, away from these damn flies. Marjorie wiped away a quickly cooling tear with a heel of her hand. It's just... I know. Ron smiled and offered his hand. He looked so stupidly earnest that Marjorie laughed, tossing the phone into her bag. Hand in hand, they made their way past a line of screechy toddlers gouging at the wet sand and merged with the water. Marjorie felt a little better, as the strain of wind's continuing delay was usurped by the need to negotiate the ocean's current. Together, they hustled past where the waves were breaking, and finally separating, dunked their heads. The water was a deep, dark green. Cold, but not unpleasantly so. I bet you by the time we get out, Wynne will be here, Ron said, blowing water from his nose. I bet we'll see her coming over the dunes. Her husband had a knack for this. Presenting Marjorie with sharply drawn, not wholly irrelevant images she could turn over in her mind. It was the coming over the dunes part that had her picturing Wynne exactly. She's late, was all she could now think to say. Ron leaned backwards, slicking back his thinning hair. Okay, so what? So what if something happened, and now I can't even check my phone? Ron rolled his eyes before again diving below the surface, swimming past her into deeper waters. Marjorie turned back to the dunes, willing wind to come over them. Suddenly a young man appeared, jogging down the weathered wooden steps between dunes before hopping down from the bottom, creating twin puffs in the dry sand. He wore navy pants and a white polo shirt. He could have been an EMT. He looked like an EMT. He looked like the kind of EMT who has to run out onto the beach to personally inform you someone, someone who hasn't been answering her phone, that her daughter had been in an accident. 
Marjorie swam back toward land, paddling her hands and frog-kicking her feet, awakening a cramp in her lower back. Halfway there, she found her footing and began battling through the waves breaking at her hips, never taking her eyes off the young man marching toward their umbrella with the certainty of a guided missile. Obviously, something terrible had happened, was about to happen. Emerging from the ocean, Marjorie was finally free to run, her heart beating so hard she could feel it in her neck. Everything was about to change again. She knew it. Mrs. Bleeker? Oh God, what? Marjorie found herself standing now before this tall, rather strapping young kid with wavy dark hair and a bright smile. Ocean water dripped from her chin, her hands, her legs. Ron was calling for her. The flies were back, attacking her thighs and upper arms. Nice to meet you. I'm Henry Downard. The man stuck out his hand. I've heard so much about you. What is it? The young man shifted his weight and swallowed. I'm Wynne's friend? Boyfriend? It took Marjorie another second to realize what this young man, who was not, in fact, an EMT, was saying to her. Oh, Hank! Yes! She took the young man's still outstretched hand in hers and pumped wildly. She could have held on forever. Is Wynne okay? Yeah, she wanted me to ask. Do you happen to have a key for the house? We think she might have left hers in the apartment. She's got her bags all out on the driveway now, looking for it. He raised an eyebrow and grinned. Right. Marjorie let go of Hank and knelt by her back. It's in here somewhere. Did you have a nice drive? I saw there wasn't much traffic for this time of day. No accidents. That's good. I saw you coming over those dunes and had a feeling. Did you get a bite to eat? Can I make you something? We may get crabs one night, though they're so small anymore. Oh, but the water is cold. Nice, though. Refreshing. You'll have to get in once you're settled. Do you swim, Hank? Is it Henry or Hank? Marjorie looked up to see whether any of what she was saying was registering with Hank. It certainly wasn't registering with her. But Hank was busy shaking hands and exchanging pleasantries with Ron, who looked a little flustered himself. Strangely enough, the flies did not seem to be going after Hank nearly as much as everyone else. That was Constance Beach, written by Chris Clancy. Chris is here with us, uh, with me, Kevin McMahon, and Jim McAteer. Chris, welcome. How are you doing? Hi, Kevin. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, Jim. Hey, good to have you on the show. I'll get us kicked off. You know, that's a really fun story. I remember when I was reading it, uh, my stress level was slowly rising. Is that story based on any specific event, uh, you know, or memory in your life? Interesting question. Um... No, I think, you know, like a lot of stories that I write and that I have, you know, heard other people describe how they write, um, it kind of started with that scene. I always wanted to write a scene or an essay or something about people slapping at themselves as uh, flies kind of eat them up. And, hmm. um, you never know when that's going to happen. Uh, your day at the beach can get just completely ruined when you get there and the flies are biting and you start slapping at them and you think, well, this, I can tolerate this. And then other people just can't stand it. Um, and there are other way, there are sort of different ways of coping with the flies biting that day. And usually probably the most, uh, efficient way of coping with it other than just leaving is uh, to get in the water. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just, I wanted to write a story about people um, 
dealing with the biting flies and and for some reason i just saw a uh an older couple uh, maybe um just kind of late middle age and they are dealing with something kind of profoundly sad and hurtful i thought those two ideas uh sort of the indignity of the biting flies kind of happening alongside the uh larger indignity of a lost child um i i thought that might be interesting and worth exploring Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, I kind of took it to be um, worry. I mean, basically, it's um, to me, it's a story about worry and how and the flies kind of represented that to me in some ways. Readers, obviously, listeners can take that in their own way. But I, I found that to be interesting because your ending is somewhat surprising in that you're reading it. And that for me, the tension was building because I'm, I'm sure at this point something horrible is going to happen. And it's kind of like that's how worry works. You know, you're, you're stressed and then the stress sort of kind of builds upon itself. But in the end, nothing does. And that to me represents like real life worry. You know, like I, sometimes you worry about stuff and it's, it impacts your body, it impacts you physically and mentally. But then in the end, it, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I thought that was a really interesting approach to the story itself. Thanks. Yeah, I was thinking both, you know, sort of buzzing insects and worries, however um, likely that thing you're worrying about is going to happen. They're both kind of bothers. You might try and, you know, build up some kind of defense, but they're they're happening either way uh, and you're going to be affected by it. Um, Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's I don't think that's wrong to to kind of, you know, compare the flies to the worry. Although I'm not sure that was, you know, my my primary intention there, mm-hmm. but I'm glad you you kind of read something into into that. As for like, the, you know, your stress level rising and things like that, I'm a huge fan of the emotion of relief. Mm-hmm. I think uh, relief is can really be uh, a terrific feeling um, <laughs> when you're worried about something and then that worry doesn't come to pass. And so I that was another thing. Um, it, are we doing like spoiler alerts? I guess if everyone... Well, they've heard it already. Yes, right. Yes, so people you... have already heard the story yeah. and I'm not giving anything away. But okay. <laughs> when, when it turns out that, you know, everything's okay, the other kid has gotten there safely, everything's all right, and uh, this new person, the, this Hank person is showing up and, you know, he's worried himself about, you know, making a good impression. Well, he doesn't <laughs> have to worry anymore because, you know, just the fact that, He's there on the beach, uh, means the daughter's on the beach, and, oh, God, we can all take a breath for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also that vacation can kind of start from that point. Okay, we're all here. I'm sure, you know, anyone with parents kind of, you know, parents some, can sometimes worry, but, they, you know, they, they sort of breathe a sigh of relief when all the kids are under the roof again. It's like, okay, we're all here. Now we can celebrate. Now we can sit down to eat. Um Hmm, yeah, that, that's interesting. that sort of thing. I and I think that's kind of one I wanted to capture uh, with the mother character there. I wanted her to sort of, I wanted sort of the those maternal feelings to to shine through. Well, great. Well, I thought I thought it was great, and I really love the scene at the end where the mom is just sort of, you know, words are just flying out of her mouth, and then she looks she looks at the boyfriend on the beach and is you know wondering. Is any of this registering with him? Because none of it's registering with her. I just think that is such, that's such a great line. And it really, it really I, I like that a lot. Because I know 
everyone has experienced that. Yeah, it's sort of this, you know, that relief again. You, you sort of get that, uh, you know, the dam has burst and, and she's babbling. She, you know, she's got so much on her mind and it's just coming out sort of undiluted. And meanwhile, you know, it, everything's okay. It doesn't really matter if she's not making sense to this kid at this point. Um, right. Yeah, that, that's just kind of, that was the idea I was going for. So, so thanks. Mm, sure. I know Jim's got some questions about process he wants to get to later on, so I'll just start off with um, going back to what you said about you just wanted to write a story about people slapping at themselves at flies. I'm like, is that how it usually starts for you? It's just like a little image or something that gets in your mind and like the story's not necessarily apparent and you just kind of go from there? Yeah, I mean... When I say I've always wanted to race, right, I mean, we're talking literally maybe a decade that I've had the idea. Wouldn't it be neat right. to have a, a story about flies uh, coming after people on the beach, uh, you know, kind of ruining their day at the beach? You know, those those feelings kind of come and go. Uh, you sort of have that idea and say, yeah, that might make a good story. Oh, well, you know, what's on TV? Or, you know, oh, it, it might be neat to to start a story with, a, you know, a lady getting um, makeup tattooed on her face. What's that story about? Oh, well, I don't feel like Googling that right now. Um, mm-hmm. I'll go eat a piece of candy otherwise. So, I mean, the idea <laughs> of process, it's almost, I mean, I, I don't have a process where I can kind of get into a mindset and start writing consciously. It's more like I'm just muddle through. And, and kind of what sort of uh, vomits out, uh, you can kind of look at and say, well, this is awful, but I can, <laughs> um, I can start editing something. I mean, th- okay, everything's terrible on this page, but there's this one sentence that kind of rings true. Maybe I can work out from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's why a lot of my stories tend to be uh, short. I think this one was only like six or seven pages. It's a mm-hmm. small moment in somebody's life. I mean, this is not, you know, this is not Marjorie's most important moment in her life. But I think what I think a lot of stories are at, at their essence, kind of, um, you know, a, a, a very large feeling that threatens to overwhelm a character or a narrator. And whether that thing does prove to overwhelm or just turns out to be false alarm, like, uh, like this one. I, I think that's the point where the writer can start exploring if you want to talk about process. Hmm. That's cool. I feel well, like thank- I'm babbling too, not unlike Marjorie though. <laughs> yeah, you're fine. <laughs> um, no, I, I, more specifically on process, I just was, I had questions about, you know, your writing technique in terms of, are you an outliner? You know, are you a pantser, plotter? You know, where do you fall on that spectrum? Mm-hmm. This is, it sounds like, you get an idea and then you just kind of let it come out. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, what, what's your approach? Yeah, I, I am a big plotter. I think about plot all the time. I, I like to think about the idea of sort of, you know, rising and falling plots and coincidences that work versus coincidences that don't work. For me, plotting is a moment of craft and craft comes later. I think when you first have that initial feeling, that initial inspiration or that idea of, oh, it might be neat to think about writing a story like this. 
I, I think you you do yourself a disservice if you don't have that kind of very fledgling um, vomit out a bunch of stuff. Because you might get something really good there, even if it's just a phrase. You might surprise yourself. And I think that that first draft of any work ought to be that that really rough idea pursued until you feel like stopping pursuing it. Hmm. Um, and then from that point, you can start to think about, well, how do I shape this? How do I give the reader that uh, feeling of rising that I think uh, I was going for with, uh, with this story? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you fall in, so you think you're a plotter? Yeah, but only in the later phases. Okay. So yeah. oh, a little bit of both. Okay. So you yeah, general yeah. plot and then you um, just dive in and see what comes out. Right, right. Okay. And of course, in this one, you know, there, this isn't a huge plot of a story. I mean, it all right. takes place in basically one person's mind in one location. Um, in about 20 you, minutes. Yeah, there's no there's no time bomb she needs to disarm. You know, there's no, uh, you know, spy games going on here. But I think what you were talking about, that, that tension coming up, I think her worries become more and more... I was going to say worrisome. I think her words become <laughs> kind of deeper and more profound and therefore scarier, especially as her mind starts playing tricks on her in terms of thinking about similarities that happened the last time disaster struck and what they looked like then versus how they look now. And uh, they're starting to feel uh, like this is all happening over again. Mm. Um, and just the, uh, the, the idea of how crushing that would be for it to happen one more, one more time. Like it, it might very well finish her off. So the story becomes, you know, her exploring the unthinkable happening twice. Mm -hmm. hmm. Do you find that you had to change your process a lot to write a novel versus short stories or feel like it's the uh -oh. same and kind of stretched out? Yeah, that's funny you say that because uh, I've been, yeah, th this this novel, I, I've been working on this novel for, gosh, I mean, really pursuing it um, for about eight or nine years. Mm -hmm. um, and most of that was because what I, what I kind of didn't realize initially was that the plot that I chose for myself uh, is really tricky. And to get it right and to have every scene sort of, you know, serve that plot in the way that I needed it to uh, was just incredibly challenging, just mentally, emotionally, logistically. It took hours and hours of uninterrupted time that I, I needed to give to myself. And it was very tough because of the, really because of the plot demands. And I wanted those plot demands to to sort of match the kind of the more expository, the more emotional demands. Um, it's, it's a slog, man. It's, it's, it's like it's climbing a mountain. Whereas I think a short story is a little bit like it's almost a stunt. Like, yeah, I bet I could jump off that balcony mm -hmm. and, and, and be okay. <laughs> you know, I, I bet I could. Hey, you think I could hop over that, you know, that dumpster? and make it all the way maybe we'll see let's try it you know um <laughs> and so 
the plotting nature of writing a novel and just filling up all the pages where you can finally feel like, and that's the novel. <laughs> that process is one where you just, you really got to pace yourself. Um, whereas a short story, if you finish it, you know, in two weeks, terrific. If you finish it in three days, that's great too. Either way, uh, a short story ought to feel short. And it, it's, it's almost like with a short story, you can kind of pull something out of yourself or out of your mind or out of your whatever, out of your heart or, or anything else. And, you know, you can, you can kind of say like, hey, look, look what I found. Whereas, you know, with a novel, you are just absolutely going as deep as you can, excavating everything, pulling it all out. It's a much more challenging thing, at least, at least to, to my mind. You know, it's funny, um, you know, as I was finishing the novel and I said, well, let's get back to short stories. I tried a few and I just thought, well, it doesn't look like I can write short stories anymore. I, <laughs> I thought at one time I could, and, and now uh, apparently I can't because none of this makes any sense. You know, just, just managing to, to get out constant speech and, and to get it finished uh, in, in the time that I had, which was just really about two weeks. I'm proud of that. I feel like I, I turned a corner with this story and I really look forward to writing more short stories. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a small victory uh, that I'm looking to build on. That's awesome, man. Yeah, thanks. That's great. So, do you have a genre that you prefer reading and or writing in? I guess I, I always go for literary. You know, capital L. You know, I, I probably I just try and kind of pick off the classics as I, as I get to them. I try and read one big, honkin', classic, stuffy uh, novel from a couple of centuries ago. I try and do that at least once a year. I think this year I, I did uh, Sons and Lovers by, by D.H. Lawrence. Didn't love it. And then uh, hmm. other than that, I, I just read, I try and read a lot of contemporary uh, yeah, you know, just the kinds of things that that win prizes and literary awards and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. That's what I try and keep up with. But I, but I don't try and keep up with oh, what's come out this year and I need to read it. It's more like, yeah, I, I keep meaning to get around to something that came out five or six years ago that everyone loved and right. uh, and now I finally can do that. And with pandemic, I, I have a little more time to to read more. Not as much as one would think, but. But, but I have a little more time to to read that, and then very occasionally I'll I'll pick up a a genre piece, uh, you know, a hard sci-fi, a mystery, and, and that sort of thing. And, and I love them, but I never find myself gobbling them up the way uh, the real uh, genre geeks like to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. How about you, Jim? What do you What have you been reading? <laughs> um. Well, I, on the literary side which i don't enjoy as much but i i do try to dabble in it i'm reading a bunch of short stories by flannery o'connor oh, called yeah. it's a collection everything that rises must converge mm -hmm. and um i've got it by my bed but those are not stories you should read before bed generally right. speaking <laughs> they're pretty i mean she goes to horrible places and but i love the way she does her character i mean i just and and the way she builds stress 
with just like one person on the page, it blows my mind. So anyway. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Um, yeah, she likes to end with like some active, unspeakable violence or something. Yes, yeah. exactly. Or And she just builds and builds and um, goodness gracious. So anyway. Yeah, it's a blast. Yeah, right. Right, it is. <laughs> it's fun stuff. Yeah. Gotcha. What about, what about you, Kevin? What do you read? Uh, I try to read a little bit of everything. I just read this book called Art Forum by this guy named uh, Cesar Aira. He's an mm-hmm. Argentinian writer. Mm. And it was really different. I guess he's a guy that, like, he doesn't revise a lot. He just writes, you know, like, he writes, like, five, like, novella-length books a year and just kind of, like, spits them out. And So that was really different. Like, you can tell there are parts. I wish I could do that. Yeah, I was I was jealous. And like, you know, <laughs> it seems unfair that you don't have to go back and revise. Um mm-hmm. So I liked that and then so I yeah, I try to read like contemporary literary fiction too. And um I really like travel writing and I read a lot of memoir too. Um earlier in the summer I read Heavy by Kezi Lehman. Mm-hmm. I really liked that. And um, he's been writing a lot of, like, kind of shorter essays this summer. So I've been, I don't know, I'm really glad I found him. I've just been enjoying reading him lately. Noggin knows that. That's good. That's you mentioned Argentinian writer. I, that, that reminds me. I am right in the middle now of something called Zama, or it might be called Zama, by, <laughs> uh, I want to say, Antonio Di Benedetto. I'm probably massacring that pronunciation, but that's kind of one of those lost classics from Argentina. Okay. It's about this. It's set in the 1700s, late 1700s. And it's about, you know, Spanish empire and this captain or Colonel or something like that. He's kind of stranded in this backwater in, uh, you know, somewhere in South America. And he's just trying to get a promotion to get back to his family. And every month, a ship comes in and he's, you know, hoping that the king will grant him leave from this backwater and he can go back home to his family. And it never comes like he never gets off this uh, backwater. And so the, the rest of the novel is just him sort of occupying himself uh, with sort of the native women. And, uh, you know, he's cheating on his wife constantly. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he's just it's just one indignity to his station that he believes he uh, ought to have. So I, I like that idea of, uh, you know, people being in a hurry and then never getting to, it, to where they need to be. And then they're sort of required to kind of change something inside themselves rather than their circumstances. That's a huge challenge. And I think that's kind of a universal thing. Uh, I've yeah, got about 40 pages left. It's, it's pretty good. That's cool. Well, I will say I recently read The Outsider and also The Institute by Stephen King. He's one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. But boy, I was disappointed in The Institute. I mean, I love Stephen King, but I I had a hard time getting through that one. So mm-hmm. it was anyway. I I I went through a massive Stephen King phase. I mean, he really is one of those writers that I thought, you know, when I was reading him, I I liked it so much. I thought, well, maybe I can try something like this. I mean, he just mm-hmm. has that voice of. Whereas characters do regular things, right. um, 
my favorite parts of his books were always like the first 50 pages before the ghost comes or before the the haunted car starts killing people or something like that i always mm -hmm. just love that like day-to-day -day, middle class people going to mcdonald's um going on dates like i i just i always went for that and i was all, it almost got to a point where i was disappointed when the scary stuff would start happening <laughs> that's interesting and yeah and that and i think that sort of that's the difference between you and me jim right there because like <laughs> you know i just wanted to go with the the life stuff the normal life stuff and it sounds like um yeah you you kind of you were there for the the thrills well, I yeah, I don't read his scary stuff generally speaking. I just prefer the um yeah, I prefer the stuff that's not super scary. So I've n I've never read it or any of those. I read Cujo in high school and I thought, "Oh my god, I'm never reading a scary book I again." Love Cujo. So great. But um well, okay, so speaking about things in books that we like, what part of writing either a short story in a novel do you find to be the most challenging, you know, like character voice or dialogue or you stick a lot of passive voice in there that you have to fix later, you know, getting mm. that emotion across. Like what, what do you find challenging when you're delving in? I don't think I have a problem with dialogue. I don't mind writing dialogue. I am not real good at description of surroundings, of environment. I've never mm. been able to write like, you know, a sunset. I, I can't write about, rain tapping on the windows very well um <laughs> it's not that it bores me I, I love to read it i i i'm amazed when when i come across it and the stuff that i read but it's funny i i just don't see it that way and it, it seems like it would be kind of intuitive to say okay well if you have a picture of in your mind and you're writing a story well just write about that picture but it doesn't come out like that it just always comes out it always comes out to the point where I'm just erasing all of it and then I try it again <laughs> and it's worse. And then I try it again and it's worse. And, you know, it's sort of just kind of like guy, just stay down. You're losing this fight here. <laughs> so I, I like to kind of keep with uh, conversations between people and there can be an element that they're, they, they, they can both talk about um, but I can't just give them that element. Like you take the flies. I'm not, I'm not spending a ton of time describing the flies themselves and how they move and all that stuff. I'm really talking more about their, the people's reactions to them, uh, the way mm. they slap themselves, um, the way they complain about them, their, their theories that may or may not hold water. That's what I prefer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the, the, the most challenging thing for me is to kind of describe uh details yeah that's a great answer thanks it's a great question jim <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness all right well we're at um 28 minutes or so so we're coming up on time is there anything chris okay so we have folks that have just you know listened to the, your story mm -hmm. and then if they've made it to this far in the interview then they've listened to you you know in your perspective on it is there anything that you would want to reveal to listeners or potential writers about the act of writing or the story itself or any message you want to impart as, before we get off the show here? To the reader, I would just say, I really, I, I hope you like this story. I, I hope it was worth your time to listen to it or to read it. Um, and can I plug something? Is that, yeah, is absolutely. That yeah. 
And my novel is called We Take Care of Our Own by Christopher Clancy. And that should be coming out early 2021. I think we're shooting for like March or April. Uh, we great. take care of our own. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. If you like this story at all, you'll love it. <laughs> I've read it and it's quite good. Thank you. Are you, do you have a website or anything going to point people to? Or are you just going to point into the publishing company or no, I online, have a, Amazon? I have an author site, ChristopherClancy.com. I like to throw up little blogs about the writing process uh, and about, you know, anything that's going on in my life. Um, so if you're at all interested in that, uh, please check that out, ChristopherClancy.com. All right, terrific. Well, with that, thank you for coming on the show, and thank you for submitting your piece to Onyx Publications. We're glad to have it in our inaugural edition. So thank you, Chris. Thanks. I appreciate this opportunity. It was great to, great to talk with you, Jim and Kevin. Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends, giving us a rating on your favorite podcast app, or better yet, shout it from the rooftops through your social media outlet of choice. The Story Discovery Podcast is a free narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine, edited by J.W. McAteer and Kevin McMahon. All stories are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new stories to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story for consideration, visit the submissions page on our website. Until next time, keep reading and writing.